Not too much longer will we be hearing those words, as we have but this sermon and one more left in our study through the books of Kings. It's been a long time that we have gathered together with the people of Israel and of Judah as we've gone through both First and Second Kings with a short break. Weeks to come, beginning in April, if you wish to prepare, you can read through the entirety of the next book we'll go through, Philippians. You can do that in probably 20 minutes or half an hour. But our text this morning is 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. And it is the story of young King Josiah. We'll begin by looking at the beginning of chapter 22. So if you'd please turn there and give your attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word. 2 Kings 22. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the eighteenth year of King Josiah, the king sent Shephan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshullam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters, and to the builders, and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked of them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shephon the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shephon, and he read it. And Shephon the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house, and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahiakim the son of Shaphan, and Achbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go. Inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahiakim and Achbor and Shaphan and Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalem, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they talked with her 
And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants all the words of the book of the king that the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring on this place. And they brought back word to the king. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would meet us in this your word. We ask, O Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you would impress it upon our hearts. That you would teach us. That you would incite us. That you would motivate us. That you would convict us that you would comfort us by means of your word. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever thought about what kind of legacy you will leave? Whether it's for a parent leaving a legacy for their children, or perhaps even children today thinking about what they will do in the future, what they want to be known as. An all-star baseball player, an astronaut, a chef, a Jedi Knight. You think about the legacy that will be left, and you plan your life accordingly. You want your children to grow and to prosper, and so you work hard. You make certain decisions around your home, around college, around vacations, relationships, because you want to leave them a legacy that will last. You want to make sure that you do all of the right things and you do the right things because you want to be blessed. You want your children to be blessed. Well, on one level, that's a very noble and good undertaking. But if we think about it, that kind of legacy is the same kind of legacy that those who worship an idol called Allah or an idol called Buddha, or an idol called evolution, have as well. They want to work hard. They want to have good things happen to them. They want good things to happen to their children. And they think about them in terms of, do good things, good things come to you. And it quickly becomes, the reason why I do good things is because I want to be blessed. And you see, this scripture here this morning abuses us of that notion. Because as we look at the story 
of good King Josiah, we see the story of a person who doesn't do good things because he wants a blessing. He does good things because he's called to that by his God, his Lord, and his Savior. And this is a good lesson for us today as Christians. And so what we will look at today is revival in Judah, how it occurs, what happens, and what are the reasons. We will first see the need for reformation. That will become obvious very quickly, that there is indeed a need for reformation. The second thing we will then look at is the day of reformation itself, the reformation that takes place in Judah at the hands of King Josiah. And then thirdly, we will see the purpose for Reformation. The purpose of Reformation, what it is not, and what it is. So let's begin then first by looking at the need of Reformation. The first thing that we see is the need of Reformation is obvious because there is disrepair everywhere. If we look at this text... It's amazing that we can turn the pages easily because we expect clutter and junk and dirt and mess between chapters 22 and 23. The kingdom is a complete mess. It's obvious to us. It's especially obvious to us as we have been going through the book of 2 Kings and we remember what we looked at last week. A 50-year reign by Manasseh and Ammon. Actually, it's a little more than 50 years. 57 years, to be exact, of godlessness, of disrepair, of disrespect for the temple of God. The kingdom is a complete mess. And although those of us who know the story of Josiah and know the type of king that he will be aren't quite as disturbed as others might be by the first couple of verses. If we read the first few verses of chapter 22, we, the first verse especially, we are struck by the fact that the kingdom is a mess because the king is eight. I don't trust my eight-year-old to pick what's for dinner, let alone for vacation, let alone to run a country. So imagine now, if you are a faithful follower of the Lord, you have, perhaps you are in your late 60s, and you remember the tales from your father and grandfather of good King Hezekiah. And all you have known are bloody purges, idols, disrespect, disunity under two wicked kings. And you are now greeted by a baby king. Well, not quite a baby, but he's eight years old. And he is, after all, also the son of one of the incredibly wicked kings. And you might be saying to yourself, well, you know, Manasseh was rotten, but Ammon, oh, wait a minute, he was really rotten too. I wonder what his son will be like. And you can imagine in the futures market in Jerusalem on whether the king would be good or bad, the futures are being bought for bad. The kingdom is a mess. Expectations are very low. You might just be tempted to go through the motions and not really care about what's going on. You know, it's the difference for about 20 baseball teams between April and August. You know, in spring training, 
everybody has a shot to be in the World Series. By August, when you're 25 games back, and you know your lineup can't hit at all, and your pitcher has a wet noodle for an arm, you're not really thinking we're going to the World Series. You're just tempted to maybe mail it in. That's when the seats, even though they're sold, are empty. That might be the temptation for the believer here in Josiah's day, to simply mail it in. Well, things aren't going to get any better. The kingdom is a mess. The other thing that's a mess is the temple. Now, you may recall Manasseh had intentionally changed it. He had brought in false altars. He had set up an Asherah. He had moved the altar. He had done as much as he could to desecrate the altar, to make it pluralistic, to make it not exclusive. Kind of like what our society wants. Any old god could be in the temple. And so the temple is a mess. And so Josiah has to start. He starts it actually a little bit earlier than his 18th year. We're told that in Chronicles that he actually starts some of these repairs in the 12th year and the 8th year of his reign. But he starts a building renovation project. And the temple is overdue. The last time that this happened was when Joash was king. Several, de several decades ago, a couple of centuries ago. And so he actually uses Joash's plan. You may recall about how there doesn't need to be an accounting for the workmen and the money will be gathered from the people. It will be paid directly to the workmen and they will go out and fix the temple. So it's obvious that there is a need for reformation because of the disrepair of the country and the temple. But that's not the worst problem because there is also a need for reformation because of disobedience. You see, deficiencies are not the worst problem facing the people of God. They can always be fixed. As a matter of fact, Josiah goes about doing it. You can always cut down another tree, grab another piece of marble, get another cloth, apply some more elbow grease. You can fix things. You can raise money. You can breed animals. You can make up for a deficiency. You know, oftentimes, this is the main focus of the church. The main focus of the church is on its deficiencies rather than on its character. We look at the disrepair of the church rather than the disobedience of the church. We worry about how many programs do we have? How much money do we have? Can we get more people involved with this? Can we get more people involved with that? Can we be a little bit sharper on our doctrine? Can we be a little bit more friendly? Now, all of those things are good to do. You should be repairing disrepair. But that's not on the level of disobedience. Because, you see, the real problem shows up when the book of the law lands thud in the lap of the king. And then he sees the problem is not that the temple's a mess. The problem is that the people are a mess. And that he is a mess. That they have disobeyed. This book of the law is the book of Deuteronomy. It is the book that Moses wrote, the second giving of the law, and handed as the book of the covenant. It is also called several times throughout the scriptures, the book of the law. It is the book of Deuteronomy. And this occurrence is very emphatic. If you look with me at verse 8, if we were to translate verse 8 using Hebrew word order, but the same words 
we would have to do a little bit of a Yodaism. We would have to say, the book of the law I have found. And again, in verse 10, we would say, a book Hilkiah has given to me. You see, the emphasis here is on the book itself. This is a very important thing. Now, just a brief aside. I could have spent five weeks preparing for this sermon just reading the comments from various commentators about how this book of the law wasn't the real book of Deuteronomy, how there wasn't a real book of Deuteronomy, and how this was written by the priest, and they put an old Moses date stamp on it, hoping to convince people it was original so that they could get them to do things. But I've already bored you with a 15-second version of that. But you see, this is important here to think about this. God's means of revival is the book of Deuteronomy. And the very first book that came under attack by those who attacked the Bible was Deuteronomy. It wasn't John. It wasn't Romans. Although those have come under attack. It wasn't Genesis. It wasn't Revelation. It was Deuteronomy. But there's an interesting thing. This is worth a flip. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Luke, chapter 4. It's a familiar incident. It's the temptation of our Lord by Satan. You recall that Satan tempts him and he says, I'll give you all the kingdoms that you could have. The first thing he says is, why don't you make this stone bread? And in verse 4, Jesus says, it is written... Man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus goes to the Bible to defeat Satan. Do you know where in the Bible Jesus goes to defeat Satan? Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Well, let's look at the next temptation here. The devil took him up and said, I will give you all this authority and all this glory, and it will be yours. And Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Again, Jesus using the sword of the Spirit, and do you know what He uses? Deuteronomy 5, verse 13. And as we turn the page and look at verse 12, when Jesus answers the last temptation, He says, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Three for three. Deuteronomy 6. Verse 16. You see, Jesus Christ himself, the God-man, went right to the book of Deuteronomy to defeat the evil one. And God himself here is using the book of Deuteronomy to rouse his people to reformation and revival. We may want to think about that the next time we think about one of the first five books of the Bible as being boring or not as exciting or useful as the Gospel of John. So there is a real problem that is here. And the problem is so bad that it is not just that they have disobeyed the law, they have completely forgotten the law. This book has become lost during Manasseh's half-century reign. They don't even know the book exists. Josiah doesn't even know these laws. Now, lest you think, wait a minute here, <laughs> how could he not know? I mean, come on, you got all this history of the kings. How could he not know? Recall to your mind people who are alive now in the former Soviet Union that don't remember history from before 1917. Because the Soviet Union did everything it could to wipe people out of history. 
You can talk to a Russian, well, maybe not now because of the Internet, but right after the fall of communism or right about the time when communism was the fall and ask them who Leon Trotsky was and they would say, who? He never existed because he had been wiped out of history. You see, Manasseh has wiped Deuteronomy out of Israel's history because he knows it indicts him for everything that he has done that was wrong. The law has been forgotten. That's how disobedient life is today in Judah. There's also disaster that is about to come. In the midst of an apparent respite, Josiah comes to the throne at just about the time that Assyria is in decline. In 627, the king of Assyria will die, the last powerful king. In 612, Nineveh, the capital, will fall. In 609, it will become a Babylonian vassal state. And so in the midst of this is Josiah, and there is a brief timeout from Israel becoming a football between Assyria, Egypt, and Babylon. But Josiah knows that disaster is coming. Why? Because he knows about the Babylonian succession plan? No. He knows about it because God tells him. Look at verse 11. He sends, when he sees the law, and he sees how fallen, how far short he has fallen from the law, he immediately sends to hear from God. And the word he gets is not exactly what he would want. He sends word and he says, I'm afraid that God's wrath is kindled against us. And the prophetess says in verse 16, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. You see, it's actually worse than he thought. There is no hope at all. Because they have forsaken me, says God, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. This is very different than we have seen in the past, isn't it? Where there are good kings and bad kings, good times and bad times, and we expect to hear about repentance and hear about God, His wrath being quenched or assuaged. Here God says, no, game over. Disaster is about to come on Judah. It's a recipe for reformation that is needed. And so what happens? What happens is the day of reformation dawns and Josiah goes at it with a fervor unknown before him. Look at chapter 23 and verse 1. Then the king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. There's a long church service. The entire book of Deuteronomy. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book and the people joined in the covenant. You see, the first thing that Josiah does is he enacts 
renewal. You see, reformation doesn't precede renewal. Renewal comes first. He renews covenant with God. And it's specifically tied to the finding of the book of the law and the covenant therein. And so just like Solomon in 1 Kings 8, and just like Joash in 2 Kings 11, he renews covenant with God. He renews the relationship. He's focused first on the relationship, then the doing. Not the doing first, and then the relationship. He urges them, we might say, in the words of Jeremiah, a contemporary prophet, chapter 6, verse 16, to find the old paths. Now, I want you to notice something here. Do you notice that Josiah does not invent new things here? He is not looking for newer and better things for the church. He is looking to change and to go back to the tried and the true, to the main things, to the Word of God, to the law of God, to the relationship with God. That's what the church needs today. It doesn't need whatever this year's greatest tool for evangelism ever is. It doesn't need the new technology that God has sent to save the church. It needs the Word of God and a commitment to stand upon the Word of God and to know that that points to a relationship with a living God who has sent His Son to bear the wrath of God that we might be freed from our sins. In the words of the old hymn, it needs the old, old story of Jesus and His love. That's what the church needed then, and that's what the church needs now. This is why many have pointed to New Testament worship services as being covenant renewal services. Because we renew our relationship with God, and we focus upon that. So he begins with renewal, but he doesn't end there. He then moves to reform. You see, what he does is, he starts a comprehensive de-paganization program. Everything that Manasseh did, he tries to undo. You know, talk about the stock market going up and down and up and down. Imagine living in Israel, you had Hezekiah fixing everything, Manasseh breaking everything, and now Josiah fixing everything again. The people of God are suffering great sea changes because of disobedience. But you see, what he does is he goes after this with an intensity that has never been seen before. Look with me at chapter 23. Let's just go down through the list. Start with verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal. So let's get rid of all the vessels. And he burns them outside and carries their ashes to Bethel. We'll see why he'll do that in a minute. And then in verse 5, he deposes the priests whom had been ordained to make offerings in the high places. So he gets rid of the vessels. He gets rid of the bad priests. Then in verse 6, he gets rid of the Asherah. He brings it out and he burns it and he beats it to dust and he casts dust upon the graves of the common people. Now think about this. This is not taking out something that's pagan and treating it gently 
and putting it off to the side, saying, well, we shouldn't touch this now, but, you know, it's awfully valuable. We may not want to see any harm come to it. No, he takes it, he burns it, he pounds it, he grabs it, he throws it in the graveyard. That's what I think of your Asherah. He goes after it with a zeal. Look at verse 7. He does. He starts to get into construction or deconstruction. All of the temple prostitutes from these false gods, he knocks all their houses down. He clears out. He knows how to get rid of idle blight. He knocks it down. Then look what he does in verse 8. He does something that no other king of Judah has done. We've seen some who have backed away from false worship but left the high places. We've seen some who have taken away the high places. He takes away the high places and he defiles them so that they will never be used again. He treats them with complete disrespect. He defiles them so they'll never be used again. Look at verse 12. He knocks down altars. And in verse 15... He goes down to Bethel. He again does something no king of Judah has ever done. He goes down to the place where it all started. In Bethel. Where Jeroboam I set up a a competitive religion. To the true religion of the true God. And he blitzkrieks it. He knocks it down. He defiles it. He burns the bones of priests on these altars. He defiles it beyond description. And by the way, shows that God's word always comes true. 300 years before this had been prophesied. Everyone who heard that prophecy is dead. But God keeps his word. He knocks down these altars and then he does, again, something no king of Judah has ever done in verses 19 and 20. He removes the the shrines and high places in Israel, in Samaria. He goes beyond Judah. And he is incredibly thorough. He defiles all of these areas. His reform is sweeping beyond anything we could imagine. It would be as if the president destroyed every gambling institution in America and knocked down all the houses of ill repute. And all of the places where child abuse and spousal abuse were happening. And put in good and just laws. And defiled all of these places of sin. It's as thorough reform as you will find in the history of the world. And then he does one last thing. He reinstitutes the Passover Properly, It's not that the Passover had been forgotten and not done. We know that Hezekiah held the Passover. But Josiah gives it its appropriate place. It's no halfway measure. He uses the right tools and the right rituals. And he reinstitutes it to its proper importance. You see, he knows that it is not enough simply to fix what is broken. You must reset up the things that have been taken out of place. This is the reform that happens. And if you are excited about that now, you should be. To see the people of God, with a zeal that only God can give, apply themselves to the things of God. To hate sin and love righteousness. But the last thing we see 
is related. It's the purpose of Reformation. Now, I want you to think about the context of chapter 23 for a minute. And I want us to see what's the purpose of Reformation that it really isn't for reward. Because if we think about verse 23, verse 23 is a freight train going downhill 150 miles an hour. The reform train is moving. The straight talk, the real straight talk bus is on its way and nobody can stop it. Stay out of Josiah's way if you're a sinner, right? There's an incredible zeal. There is an incredible practical daily change. You would go from walking into the temple and seeing filth to seeing the worship of the living God. It's building up, building up, building up. And then we turn to verse 26. Well, before we do that, let's go to verse 25 and see the build up before him. There was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. That includes, Christian, David. There was no king who followed the law of God like Josiah. Nobody was better. Verse 26. Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, and the house of which I have said, my name shall be there. And if verse 26 doesn't hit you like a brick in the face, check your heart. You want to weep hearing that verse. But, but look at all he did. But look at his eagerness. There was no half-heartedness. Look at how he followed the... Look, you said, Lord, no one like him ever. And still... It has no effect at all. This is in complete distinction. You will never hear 2 Kings 23 preached in a word of faith church. It cuts against their theology. Do good, God will love you. Have faith, do good things, God will bring good things to you. Josiah says, where's my good things? Where's my big house? Where's my Cadillac? Where's my good kingdom? No one like me, ever. It isn't for reward that Josiah acts. It also isn't for prosperity. Because look at his first reaction to the word. In verse 19 of chapter 22, he heard this first word. He already knew this was coming. And his heart was humble and soft. He took the bad news unbelievably well. Now think about that. Would that we would take bad news as well as Josiah did. Josiah finds this book of the law. He is afraid. And the prophet ascends in the word of the Lord. Yeah, by the way, it's not as bad as you think. It's worse. 
And his response is repentance, humility, softness. How many times, Christian, are you tempted when someone comes up to you to urge you on in the ways of the Lord and immediately you get defensive? Well, I know. Well, who are you? Well, how can... I raise my hand as guilty. Is your heart soft? Is your heart humble? Or are you worried about prospering? You see, the gospel is not about prospering. That's not the reason that we're in a relationship with God. That's not the reason that we do the things that He has commanded. You see, we are not to see God as a means to an end. You see, Josiah could have done all these reforms figuring that he could get in good with God and God would fix his country and fix his family and fix everything else. I have to tell you, dear ones, Jesus is not there to fix your marriage and get you out of alcohol and get you off drugs and get you on a sound financial plan. Following the scriptures will do that. But that's not what Jesus is there for. Jesus is there for you, to get you, to redeem you, not to give you baubles. It's not for prosperity that we obey God. It's not for a reward that we obey God. It is for the Lord himself. You see, Josiah knows that true faithfulness does not confuse obedience with pragmatism. His diligence is unmatched in the midst of knowing disaster. We talked a little bit before about baseball in August. Have you ever watched a game that's a blowout? And have you ever watched sometimes the difference between the starters in the blowout and a couple of second teamers that come in? The starters come in and they know the game's over. So they go through the motions. They don't want to get hurt. They don't want to strain their leg. Second teamers are diving over the scoreboard. Scorekeeper's table. They leave it all out on the court. They don't care what the score is. They're there to play ball. And they're there to play ball right. That's what God wants from you. He doesn't want you to worry about the score. He doesn't want you to worry about your house or your country, where your country will be in 50 years. He wants you to be zealous and seek after Him now, today. We obey not to be changed. We obey because God demands it. There is probably no better passage in the Scripture to show the proof of the theology that good works follow regeneration rather than precede it. You see, Josiah is not looking to be changed by his works. He knows he's changed, and he has to act in accordance with that change. Because he knows the Lord has a right to be served, even when our service does not bring us a benefit or a blessing. So what does that mean? That means for you, even though you will never be king of Judah, and I hope to the Lord you never have to remove an Asherah from a building. It means for you who worship and serve the living God, 
even when your personal problems don't go away. It's for you who worship and love God even when economic success is not around the corner. Even when emotional distress is not solved. You see, we are to follow Josiah as he follows Jesus. We are to seek after the Lord, not the things the Lord can give. Let me leave you then with just a few questions. Do you pray for revival today? Do you pray for revival in America? Why? Is it so the United States will be saved? Is it so that the glory of the Pax Americana will go on for another century? Is that why you pray for revival? Do you pray for a revival for safety? Because you, like me, fear persecution such as we see in India and China and Sudan. Is that why you pray for revival? Or do you pray for revival for the glory of the living God? That He might be magnified. That He might be known in the midst of whatever mess we are in. He is God and is God alone. I hope you do. I hope you pray for revival in your nation. I hope you pray for revival in your families. I hope you pray for revival in your life. And that you follow after this example, King Josiah. Let us pray.